The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyad. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Uh, joining me for the hour is uh, returning champion Keith uh, Weeder. Uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of different uh, big topics here. But uh, Keith, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? How'd you get interested involved in markets, in metals, and uh, what do you do now? Founder and CEO of a company called Monetary Metals. We pay interest on gold. Um, I'm a, I consider myself to be a serial entrepreneur. Founded and built a software company called Diamondware. Sold that to Nortel Networks August 19 of 2008 was the transaction. So while I was sitting there in 100% cash, just about watching um, the world go over the edge in the fall of 2008, started to study markets and economics, came to realize there was a very great problem, came to realize that uh, gold has something to do with the solution, wanted my next venture to be part of the solution, founded Monetary Metals a few years later in uh, 2012. And uh, you know, came to realize that interest is the key to the whole thing. Interest is what will cause gold to circulate and restart uh, the gold standard that uh, President Roosevelt killed in 1933. So you mentioned um, you were staring over the edge in 2008. Um, I wonder if you think that we're maybe staring at a similar type of moment. Um, you've got this regional bank crisis. you get the debt ceiling. Uh, you've got a hell of a lot of complacency. You've got commercial real estate. Housing maybe being a problem. Um, are we? Are there any parallels to how you felt then with how you feel now? It's you know, we're, leaving aside the debt ceiling, which I think is the big nothing burger, and I think it's just an opportunity for for the two parties to you know engage in some grandstanding and some posturing. Um, but we're in exactly the same place that we're in in two thousand eight. Only, you know, everyone uses the expression kicking the can down the road. Well, we're farther down the road and the can has more kicks in it, right? So it's the same mess. What did they do? I mean, it was it was a crisis of too much debt. So what did they do? Lower the interest rate and, um, you know, create even more debt. And uh, the last crisis was precipitated when the Fed thought that it could hike interest rates. Um, and so now we're staring at the next crisis because the Fed thinks they can hike interest rates. And uh, absolutely, I see a lot of parallels, except things are bigger and more severe now than they were in 2008. I guess the question is, what what can be done about it? I mean, I I remember in in uh, 2008, uh, I think it was Jim Grant who 
said, you know, we've been kicking the, the can down the road so much the can's kicking back, right, was sort of his argument back then. Um, and I think like there is something, some truth to that, right? I mean, the can kicking back now is inflation, right? That there's a cost to, you know, everything that the, the government's done and, and the Fed has done. Um, but that doesn't mean that you have to absolutely collapse tomorrow. I mean, this is this is a process in terms of that backdrop. So um, how do you think through, you know, again, the, given that you've done very well for yourself with your portfolios, you know, I, we'll talk about gold, but how do you think through asset allocation in an environment which is very, very deceptive, tricky, but also could for a moment in time rally just like we see prior to, you know, uh, major crashes in general? It's, it's really, really hard. And, and I know that sounds like a cliche and Yogi Berra, you know, predictions about the future, Difficult, you know. No predictions are difficult, especially about the future. You know, you're, you know, it's one thing to look at the economics and say there are certain economic laws, there are certain things that work the way they work, and and you know, place your bets appropriately. It's another to say, okay, you know, there's a bunch of politicians in charge, and that's what they are. At the end of the day, when you socialize something, and that's what the Fed is, it's the socialization of credit. When you socialize something, it replaces any kind of market process with a political process. And these people posture as economists, but really their intent is to centrally plan, you know, our little lives for us. And um, you're trying to guess what they're going to do next. And politics makes very strange alliances, bedfellows, you know, I mean, there's, there's no question in my mind that the interest rate trend is falling and all the forces of why it's falling are reasserting themselves with a vengeance. But Powell seems hell bent on, hiking interest rates, at least until there's such a degree of crisis. You know, I like to use the analogy, he's in the ivory tower on the 110th floor and he can look down 110 floors and he can see all the people down below. And he's like, I do say, James, you know, they do seem to be in a bit of a spot of trouble down there. You know, look at all that mayhem. And, and um, when the, when the flames finally are, are looking at the windowsill on the 110th floor, Oh my God, there's a crisis. You, you know, they're not particularly sensitive to the crisis until, it reaches a certain point, but it, it becomes very political. And I'll use the example of Silicon Valley Bank. Which two groups were most opposed to the bailout of Silicon Valley Bank? And that's what it was. I mean, FDIC has a limit of $250,000, but um, you know, a couple of days after they seized the, the bank, the regulators said, we're going to bail out all the deposits regardless of the size. The two groups that came together in opposition to this were the extreme left and the extreme right. The extreme left opposed it on grounds that they're bailing out rich white people, and the extreme right opposed it on grounds that we're bailing out extreme woke people. And so, you know, apply that to the Fed and its decision to hike or not hike. Um, you know, which way could the politics twist? Jay Powell, nominally Republican, but now he has to work obviously under a Democrat administration. Which way does he want to go? Which are the political wins? And in order to figure out which, um, you know, which assets you want to allocate to, you kind of want to understand if interest rates are going to continue to rise, you certainly wouldn't want exposure to anything that was credit sensitive, such as real estate. Um, if interest rates are going to fall, it might be a good time now to, to place your bets because, um, you know, certain things are, are, you know, going to boom in that kind of environment. And it's, it's a political guess. It's not really an economic question. And so, you know, I don't know. Uh, that's, that's not one that I feel I have any particular, um, 
you know, inside. Eventually, he's going to be forced to cut rates, but it's a question of when. Yeah, or, or the market will, will force them to cut rates, meaning, you know, the bond market would move first, right? And the thing is, you got a lot of noise because of the debt ceiling, which we'll, we'll get into. But um, I, I want to hit on, on you know, the word uh, crisis. Um, as the whole regional bank stuff was unfolding, uh, I kept on saying, and I still believe this, that it's a bit of a manufactured crisis um, because how do you – how do you stimulate in high inflation, right, with an excuse, right? And the excuse being that there's this kind of regional crisis that, you know, let's face it, it's not really impacting the headline averages, but clearly has impacted small caps and certain other um, kind of cyclical sectors of the stock market. Um, is this a, enough of a crisis, in quotes, for the Fed to, you think, change course down the line given the lag effects or – yeah, do you suspect that this is you know uh, also kind of a nothing burger? Well, I think there's a very real banking crisis, and the banking crisis is is born out of all of the things that people consider to be features, not bugs, in our monetary and banking system. That we have irredeemable currency, which means the interest rate is unstable. Number one, unstable interest means that bond prices move inverse to interest rates. So if interest rates are rising, that means bond prices falling. We have monetary policy, which everyone looks likes to look at Silicon Valley Bank and say, oh, stupid. You know, they bought all these, um, you know, the, at the height of uh, the 2020 um, stimulus, they had a huge in, inrush of deposits. Their customers, of course, tend to be venture-backed startups, and venture-backed startups are raising huge amounts of money in 2020 and 2021. Um, so they had a huge inflow of deposits. They have to buy some sort of asset with that cash. They bought long-dated treasury bonds. And everyone says how stupid they were. Well, let's take a look at, at, you know, what was going on. Number one, monetary policy at that time was to try to drive down the interest rate um, across the whole yield curve, but especially including long-dated, um, you know, bonds. So I want to know, what to what degree were the um, supervisor? Banks aren't just merely regulated, right? If you're, if you're in the finance business as an investment advisor or a broker, you have regulation, right? It's, you have to file reports. You have to have a license or certain things you have to do. If you're a bank, you're actually supervised. You have to house at your expense government employees in your offices. And those people are inviting themselves into your meetings, reading your emails, going through your records, and telling you what to do. And they have varying degrees of suggest versus nudge versus strongly encourage versus order you what to do. I want to know what degree the regulators and the supervisors were telling them buy long data treasury bonds because that was supporting monetary policy at that moment in time. So whatever, they bought uh, long data treasury bonds and um, a lot of them. And, you know, because they have huge in Russia deposits. Fast forward to a rising interest rate environment. Venture back companies aren't raising capital anymore. And as these companies are spending their cash balances, you see a net outflow of deposits from Silicon Valley Bank in particular, but all the regionals have the same problem to varying degrees, um, or all the smaller banks, I should say, including the regionals. And so um, you have a situation where the bank now has to start selling these uh, these assets, these long-dated treasuries, in order to meet the relentless outflow of deposits. Well, now they're selling stuff that they had bought at higher prices, and now they're selling it at lower prices. They're taking dreadful losses, which were kind of a surprise because if you go back to 2008, there were a lot of people uh, who believed that mark-to-market accounting, right, when a bank has a, an asset that it holds and um, the asset loses value, the bank would have to mark it down on their balance sheet and show the losses. 
There were a lot of people who argued in 2008 that that was exacerbating the crisis. In 2009, almost of the day that the market hit its bottom, I want to say it was March or April of 2009, they changed the accounting rules and said, you don't have to mark the market anymore. You can keep those things at, um, you know, at par as long as you declare your intention to hold them to maturity. So Silicon Valley Bank had all these bonds held to maturity, quote unquote, which is just a, a, category, a regulatory category. It's not, it's not a fact. So you get deposit outflows and suddenly we have to sell these things that they said hold to maturity. And then the losses are revealed. And if you bought in August of 2020 and you were selling in January of 2023, you were looking at a tw- about a 25% loss on some of those bonds which for a bank is an enormous hole in the balance sheet. People started to become alarmed and you have uh, acceleration of, of outflows um, and you know, eventually the bank collapses. Uh, that same dynamic is occurring in a lot of other banks. And um, I don't know what amount of, of dollars, trillions of dollars, I would assume, is at risk you know, because of this. So what's happened now is money market funds in particular and Treasury Direct, I would assume as well, are luring people out of bank deposits and into uh, alternative kinds of instruments that are paying a higher interest rate. The banks can't match those interest rates because their asset portfolios don't pay. And so that's just, basically, there's a slow motion run on the banks right now, or the smaller ones, not not the big four, but uh, most of the other guys. Yeah, we're we're back to uh, too big to fail, but not uh, for all banks, right? I think is is you know the dynamic. I'm glad you mentioned that point about the mark to market. Um, I remember that period quite well, and I think there is a lot of validity to the idea that removing the mark to market is what caused the con of confidence to come back into markets, right, and kind of create that self perpetuated, uh, you know, uh, low and and rally since then. Um, no way to prove it, but uh, do you suspect that if uh, we were back in a mark-to-market kind of world that this would look uh, even worse than 2008 when you look at the the duration side, the way that it cratered last year? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard for me to guess and I haven't run those numbers. And my guess would be, yeah, it would look worse than 2008. Um, but I, I think more importantly, it would give the bankers themselves, I think everybody tends to focus on whatever the official number is. It's very hard to hold simultaneously in your head. Well, for statutory purposes, we're perfectly solvent and we have, um, you know, whatever, $15 billion in, um, in equity. But, uh, but really we have, um, uh, you know, negative equity. We're actually insolvent. Even the bank managers, how do you, how do you simultaneously believe those two things? But then certainly for everyone else, investors, depositors do not have a clear picture of just how bad it is. And of course the, the fear of the unknown may actually exacerbate, the behavior, you know, certain banks might be more or less okay. They may have done more to try to hedge the interest rate risk, you know, whatever. Um, oh, that was the other thing. The 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 change in mark to market accounting had a very, you know, people talk about unintended consequences, and uh, I don't I don't prefer that term because it puts too much focus on the alleged intentions of the politicians who passed these stupid laws. I'd I'd rather call it perverse incentives which motivate perverse behaviors and you get perverse outcomes. One of the perverse incentives of um, the suspension of mark-to-market, if you have a bond and you declare it holds to maturity, you can't hedge it anymore. It's not really possible because the hedge would then be a standalone instrument that it itself would have a mark-to-market implication and and create volatility on your earnings. Um, 
So uh, there was a strong disincentive in, in that form to, to not hedge. Uh, so anyways, you just get all these things accumulating. It's very opaque because there isn't mark-to-market. It's very hard for people to see, okay, well, what's the real picture? And then what, what exactly is served if you can't see a clear picture of a bank's balance sheet? What's the whole point of public accounting if you can't see a clear picture? I mean, the whole thing just becomes just a giant mess. And of course, people acting on fear, which, you know, make it worse. And um, I, I think if you made the assumption that the banking system was insolvent, you wouldn't, if that turns out not to be true, you wouldn't be very far off the mark. And I, I suspect that's the reality of, of where we're at right now. What are the implications of that? Well, they're pretty broad. But, um, well, I, I would argue in in a very weird way that that, that that's bullish because <laughs> it goes back to my point of, you know, the end of the world is the bull case. It's like if everything's insolvent, nothing fucking matters. So I might as well, you know, YOLO into anything and everything else. Um, but I, I hear you. I mean, it, it's it's hard to argue with the fact that, yeah, if you were to price things in real time, uh, there actually isn't enough capital in the context of all this inflation. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I don't frame it as an inflation thing. I, I frame it as a the banks have a balance sheet with assets and liabilities. And when assets fall below liabilities and assets have, have fallen a lot uh, in the last, uh, what it was, 15 months, um, assets less than liabilities is the recipe for insolvency. Um, you know, very simple. So that's a pretty compelling um, argument if you're Jay Powell to reverse and start um, lowering interest rates to get asset prices to come back up and, and then the banks can be magically recapitalized, um, which is a whole other set of problems. I, I guess I, I want to say one thing by the uh, way of caveat, Michael, for anybody listening to this, Sometimes people may think, well, I'm just an apologist for the system, or I'm just cheering on the dollar and the treasury and the debt and all that. I'm absolutely not. The system is horribly perverse. It's wickedly harmful to everybody. But as you look at the choice of, you know, burn it all down now versus, um, you know, buy us some more time to hopefully try, try to get to a better solution, I can't imagine why anybody would say burn it down now. I, I'm so glad you said This is the shit that drives me crazy about, about the way that people think it's like, we all agree we want the system to be fairer and efficient in the allocation of capital. Uh, and the response is, well, you got to burn it down for that to be the case. Do you know how painful that's going to be? I mean, it's like, I, I don't know how people think. You, you want the system to fix itself, uh, ideally faster than not. But if you're going to do it through an event, I promise you, you don't want that event to happen in your, in your lifetime. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, um, I've written a lot about 476 AD as that sort of event. And uh, sure, absolutely, it's true. We went back to honest gold coinage after 476 AD. Of course, more than 90% of the population perished. Um, and then you had you know several centuries of essentially constant open war. Uh, my theory of King Arthur is that things were so bad that people were begging desperately for any strong man who would rape them and abuse them and take 50% of their income and draft their sons to the, to the army as long as he would stop the general killing. And then, you know, finally you have a medieval period, you know, many centuries after Rome collapses and, and then a renaissance and the world finally got back to Roman levels of engineering and technology, you know, 1400 years, 1500 years after, uh, you know, after Rome fell. It's the sort of calamity that, yeah, you don't necessarily want to be anywhere near that when that happened. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. 
Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Speaking about um, hedges, I think that's a good transition to uh, metals, gold in particular, um, which, you know, it's kind of hovering around. It's, you know, uh, kind of high that was looks like it was touched a few times, you know, going back to 2020. Um, what's it going to take for gold to really kind of break out and, and have sort of a real secular cycle? Uh, does it need a catalyst? Does it just need institutional momentum players? Um, what What would it take for people to be convinced to play a trend in gold? Well, first I'll give the the short answer, um, but then, as I'm sure you suspected, I want to I want to add a few more remarks to that. I think when when and it's not an if, it's a when Powell reverses, and we're going back to ZERP and beyond, you know, zero interest rate policy, um, you're going to see a hell of a rally in the gold price. Um, that said, I think I think we're in a bull market now. I think that the trend of let's call it post 2011 through 2018, 2019. I think that's done. I think there's just different patterns of behavior uh, in the market, you know, globally. Um, and uh, I, I don't think we're in, in that, you know, sell the blip kind of place that we were for so long. I think we're in a buy the dip kind of place. All of that said, I always have to, to put the caveat around this. I don't think gold actually moves anywhere. It's the dollar that moves down, not gold that moves up. And so what we're really saying is, what's the next secular bear market in the dollar? Or what's it going to take for the dollar to move down big time from you know, 15, 16 milligrams of gold to, let's say, 7 milligrams of gold per dollar? What is it going to take? Well, as they continue to erode the soundness of the dollar and confidence in the dollar institutions, it's logical for people to want to dump their dollars more. And that's that's what the gold trade is. It's when you don't want to invest or speculate in anything else, even including, you know, the generally accepted medium of exchange, when you're just done with that and don't trust it anymore, then gold is the thing to buy. It's the only thing to buy. It's the only it's the only thing that is both a financial asset and not the, the, the liability of some other counterparty. So there's things that aren't liabilities. You could buy antique cars, you could buy whiskey, you could buy real estate, artwork, but those things have, they're not financial assets. They have wide bid-ask spreads. And of course, they're quite subject to credit conditions. Gold is a financial asset, but um, it doesn't have those problems. And so it's interesting to me that as unloved as gold is, as, you know, it's either not talked about or people dismiss it with an area hand wave, how stupid it is to buy gold. Um, you know, look at where the price is, near all-time highs in dollar terms. and um, you know, even stronger in uh, most other currencies. Speaking about the dollar, sort of a, a link to that. Um, I'm looking at the thread in the space, and there's a comment saying, uh, "Has anyone considered that things in quotes might have changed? Uh, does anyone consider that over half the world's population is maybe done with the U.S. and the weaponization of the dollar?" Now, I uh, I will preface this by saying that 
uh, all the times I've said in the last couple of weeks that I think the dollar is going to make the greatest comeback since Lazarus, uh, that's more of a short-term trading sentiment, not a uh, not sort of a secular long-term trend argument. But what are your thoughts on sort of just in the context of this idea of this bear market in the dollar, um, how that interplays with the broader narratives around de-dollarization, which let's face it, a lot of people talk about it, but I, I, I'm a little skeptical myself. So uh, first, a quick remark about bear market and dollar. It's really, you know, since since the highs in the dips, why, um, what was that, five months ago now? I don't, I'm, I'm kind of losing track of that. Um, it's the other currencies going up, not the dollar going up. The other currencies are all dollar derivatives. So it's the other currencies going up against the dollar, which is what's supposed to happen when the Fed becomes more accommodative. Um, you know, that's that's supposed to be good for everybody. And um, the way the Fed becomes more accommodative, I had a bit of a discussion. We had uh, Daniel DiMartino Booth on our podcast, The Gold Exchange. And, you know, of course, she very famously said it's not QE, you know, what uh, this term bank loan facility, whatever they call it, in the wake of uh, Silicon Valley Bank. And I said, you know, whether or not you use that label QE is not that interesting to me. But it seems to me that the Fed is take a thing with one hand by, um, you know, saying we're hiking interest rates and all that. But they're giving a thing with another. They're they're lending cash against bank um, assets, but not at current market value. They're doing it at par, whatever the banks paid for it originally. And so that is providing some critical liquidity to the market. That allows things to rally, or at least not crash the way they otherwise would. The other currencies are rallying. There's nothing to do with, um, you know, quote unquote, de-dollarization. So I'll offer a couple of thoughts on de-dollarization. Um, one, the other currencies are all dollar derivatives. Even if you look at some particular central bank's balance sheet and see that the quantity of dollars as a percentage went down, and instead they had whether it's euros or yuan or whatever on it. Replacing the dollar with one of its derivatives doesn't fundamentally change anything. It's rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is the other currencies have reasons to be even less trusted than the U.S. currency. It's just that there's less data about those other currencies. There's less transparency. And so everyone loves to, you know, the dollar is their favorite punching bag because there's so much more visibility and transparency as to what's going on versus the yuan. Um, on a on a business trip, I visited mainland China. This was pre-COVID, and, and obviously I haven't been back since, uh, to see if there was a market there for folks that wanted to um, obviously get some money outside of the Chinese system, get it into gold rather than dollars, and get a, a return on their gold or an interest on their gold. And uh, what I discovered there after meeting several wealth advisors is you know, wealth advisors there do the same thing as as uh, as they do in the U.S. or Western countries, which is to help people understand their goals and their risk tolerances, risk preferences, and, you know, put together uh, allocations that make sense, keep people kind of on the straight and narrow. But in addition to that, they have one, I would almost say, overarching function, which is they navigate the ever-changing capital controls. Everybody with any degree of wealth in China is desperately trying to get their capital out of Yuan and out of out of China. And they risk their lives to do so. And there's a whole cottage industry of wealth advisors that help them do that. And so the thought that people are going to send their deposits to China and become a creditor to President Xi, while his own people are risking their lives to, to escape it, just strikes me as um, 
not realistic at best. And then, and then finally, I'll say, in all my travels, I certainly, and I visit a lot of countries where they're not necessarily, fr- certainly not friends of the dollar, not in some cases, not even necessarily friends with the U.S. or not that friendly. Everybody hates it. You know, they, they realize the dollar is killing them. That's, that's well understood. And that's not news. I mean, that's just been that way for many, many decades. But there's no realistic hope in, in these parts of the world that there's anything that really replaces the dollar. You know, it's one thing, and it's, it's the way voters talk versus the way they actually behave. People vote for things like light rail. Why? Is that because they intend to actually take light rail and, and get rid of their car? No, of course not. They vote for light rail because they think everyone else is going to take light rail to get rid of all these cars that are in my way, and I won't have rush hour traffic anymore. You know, there's that difference between what people say and what they do. In their behaviors, um, there is no, you know, what is that? There is no, Tina, there is no alternative. That's how, you know, folks behave. I've met with pension funds in countries that are definitely not friendly to the dollar. The pension funds are denominated in dollars. They don't denominate the pension fund in the local currency. The local currency is toilet paper and they know it. And they don't denominate it in euros. They don't denominate it in yuan. It's denominated in dollars. It has dollar investments all over it, all around the world. It really isn't, um, any viable alternative, the network effect of the dollar is so strong that you could almost look at all the other paper currencies as like West Virginia coal mining towns with a company, you know, Scrip or the other currencies versus the US dollar. Um, there, there, there really is no irredeemable currency that can replace it. There is one thing that could replace it, but as I always say, ain't nobody want that. And that's that shiny yellow metal that nobody, nobody wants to talk about in, in that sense. Yeah, and e- even the argument of, well, you know, uh, having a, a basket <clears throat> of currencies as kind of your, your new standard, it's, you know, all, all that's doing is diluting uh, the legal strength of uh, where you're putting your capital. I mean, going back to your point, uh, the dollar's reserve currency really because of the legal system uh, and property rights, right, as opposed to anything else. And unless you have... You know, China as sort of the uh, competitor, the real big competitor, uh, having a degree of of real framework around uh, protection from Xi and and other government officials. Good luck. I mean, that's just not going to pass. But let me uh, reset the room for the remaining twenty minutes here. Everybody, please make sure you follow uh, Keith Weiner here on Twitter. Uh, and if you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. You had mentioned unintended consequences. You don't like that. That term, um, you can argue there's a lot of complacency. Um, I hear you on the nothing burger. They're going to pass the debt ceiling, all this stuff. But, you know, when you're in a very levered system, it doesn't take that many butterflies flapping their wings to create a hurricane. So it could be nothing. But, you know, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that, that, that's the thing. It's, it's this is what I think is, is being that's why even this issue around sort of the Fed uh, engineering a soft landing to me is problematic. They have to be far more precise today than Volcker was because the starting leverage of all this is so high. Right. Is there is there a scenario where this is no longer kind of a nothing burger is something that maybe nobody really sees coming at all when it comes to uh, what's happening with the debt ceiling, where it could really cause a either a 2011 repeat, something maybe worse? Or, you know, is it just like you said, something that doesn't really matter at all and there's nothing that can make it matter? We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I mean, there are, you know, political factions that are saying default, just burn it all down. Let's just get it over with now. And if that means mass death, so be it. Um, I, I don't think those represent even, you know, 25% minority, let alone um, a majority. If those factions were to gain an influence and say, yeah, let's default. You know, I, I don't think even those folks have really thought through what the implications of that are. But most people think of the dollar as having an independent existence from the treasury bond. And, and my argument is one's the front side of the bill and the other is the back side. They're one and the same instrument. The dollar is just a thin slice of the treasury debt. You default on the treasury debt, that wipes out all the dollars. So imagine everybody wakes up one morning and you don't have a bank balance because the bank is just you know wiped out. You don't have a job because your employer's bank is wiped out. Uh, even if you had a few paper notes in your pocket, first of all, nobody would take them. And secondly, the food stores, they can't buy any more you know, food because their banks were wiped out. Um, that's, a, that's a horrific scenario. I, I just don't think, I don't think that's going to happen because I think the people that run the system kind of realize that and would overrule even if there was a political urge to try to uh, default. But if that happened, I mean, then you're looking at... Um, you know, one hell of a crisis and a crisis like that. I don't think it's about owning, you know, any, anything that depends on electronics. You know, people think about Bitcoin. I mean, the power grid is going to go down along with the food distribution system. Um, so there isn't going to be computers in that scenario. You're obviously not going to be interested in stocks. I think those companies will all be destroyed as well. Um, and what I always say to people when it comes to that kind of scenario is you're better off having gold than not like gold in your pocket. But that may not necessarily avail you. And I distinctly recall seeing a museum exhibit. I don't know if this was the British Museum or an exhibit I saw in Zurich. Um, but it was gold coin, you know, gold hoards that were dug up in the post-war you know, building boom after World War II. You know, there was a lot of taller buildings being built all around Europe and in excavating for the basements and sub-basements they unearthed all these treasure troves of gold coins that in this particular exhibit dated to the fall of Rome to 476 AD. And some of the, and some of these um, collections were, you, you know, a few tens of ounces and some of them were a few hundreds or a few cases, a few thousands of ounces. These are very wealthy people that had a huge amount. I mean, a thousand ounces of gold then as now was a fortune. These are very wealthy people, but obviously the gold did not avail them. That in the in the calamity and the chaos um, of what was going on when Rome fell, either these people fled with their lives and were never able to get back, or or they somehow died either in the in the you know in the killing or in the the long hard road, you know, to get wherever they were going. And even the survivors, let's say you had an estate in what's now the south of France, and you got out of Rome, you, you know you start to think, okay, well, I'll get back there when things calm down. But of course they didn't. So you tell your kids, hey, we have a villa back in Rome. And in the sub-basement is this hoard of, of gold. 
and your kid tells his kid when he gets old and, you know, three or four generations in, it becomes the myth of grandpappy's gold in Rome. And a few more generations after that, and it becomes, you know, it's forgotten. And that's where it was for 1500 years. So are you better off with gold in your hand? Yeah, it might buy you safe passage wherever you're trying to get to. But what a horrific scenario. And um, I, I think I, I, there's a lot of things I'm pessimistic about, but I'm not. Uh, I, I don't think that that's likely to come to pass. I think most people wouldn't be for it. And I think the people that run the system realize how bad that would be and, and would uh, oppose it at every step. Yeah. So second part first, um, I, I'm, 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 I'm interested in the, in the you know, commentary by Brent Johnson and by Jeff Snyder, both of whom I, I, I don't want to speak for them, but I, I don't think they're necessarily permabulls on gold. Um, they're accused of being permabulls on, on the dollar. Ironically, uh, Brent with his milkshake theory and, um, Jeff with his Euro dollar theory. But I think they have some very interesting things to say about, you know, different aspects of, of the monetary system. Um, what was the, I'm sorry, what was your first part of your question? You know, in general, I, I have very different views to what drives interest rates than pr probably anybody else. And in my view, you got to look at what's the demand? Who, who is, who's rushing to issue more long dated credit, um, at these rates versus liquidating capital to try to pay back debt. And so I, I just don't see drivers for a higher rate. I mean, could there be a short-term thing with through the Fed's gyrations? If banks are forced to sell bonds and there aren't buyers, obviously rates can spike. On the other hand, with the Fed now essentially repoing all these long-dated bonds and doing so at par, it's a lot more attractive for a bank to repo it to the Fed than to dump it. And so I would tend to think that, um, you know, We've seen the high in 10-year you know, yields on the 10-year, and uh, the 10-year is wanting to fall in yield, not uh, not rise. I, I could be wrong on that. I'm certainly not a trader, but um, I, I, I just don't see the drivers for it. You mentioned uh, you're not a trader, but presumably you know, you'll also kind of either trim or reevaluate positions. I get the, the gold focus, obviously, but you know, for your own – personal portfolio um what are you largely doing or what have you done and what would cause some shifts um i do i do have some long data treasuries in my portfolio other than that cash and gold and of course um a great deal of equity in and monetary metals which uh you know that's what that's what occupies my my time and my energy anyway um but i don't really have you know uh, much in the way of equities there's a few things that i, I find interesting you know, unique situations, but I, I think we're in very perilous times. And I, I think far too many companies are either zombie or near zombie and are going to become zombies once all the zombies get, get liquidated, which I think is one of the things that happens in a rising rates environment. It'd be interesting to see how those walls of maturities hit. Um, and now Bloomberg is starting to report on accelerated bankruptcy filings. We had an article yesterday, there were seven Decent-sized corporations that filed bankruptcy yesterday, um, and what what does that do to all of their vendors and obviously all their employees and all the companies that sell to their employees? We're just getting started on that. Have you seen a an uptick in people that are are interested in in what you're doing with monetary metals and the interest side of gold, or is it you know kind of you know just kind of a gradual uptrend? Um, I, I say that just 
to get a sense of sort of the the pulse of people that are, who are familiar with you um, if they're uh, pulling the trigger on some of the stuff that you offer. Yeah, there, there absolutely is. I mean, it's generally been an exponential uptrend since the beginning, and every time there's been a stutter or a hiccup or a crisis, um, you know, there's there's an acceleration. So when COVID hit, that was a huge uh, uplift for us. I mean, it, it was awful personally to live through, and even in Arizona, which had a more mild lockdown than, say, California and New York, you know, it's depressing to just see everything's closed, restaurants done, you know, people not in the offices anymore and all that. But from a business perspective, it was awesome. And Silicon Valley Bank, same thing. There's a there's a big there's a big uplift uh you know for us and what we're doing. Cause it's it's kind of a first of all, I guess it's gold, but I was gonna say it's an anything but anything but the banking system kind of play. But I I, I guess I wouldn't quite quite want to denigrate gold like that. It's more than just a gold is anything but the banks. It's gold and it's, you know, uh, and what we're doing is we're making it um, much more of a mainstream type of thing that serves that function that, um, I mean, we're not a bank. We can't say the word bank. We're not regulated like a bank, but serves one of those functions, which is a, a vehicle for savings that has interest, which compounds, which is what, you know, for, since, since the beginning of time, that's what people turn to banks for. and And now... You know, for the longest time, you know, post two thousand eight, the banks weren't providing interest. Now they're providing some interest, but there's a greater awareness of the risk that comes along with that interest, which is massive and opaque and almost imponderable. You know, what's going to happen with that? So yeah, there there is a big uh, there is a big swivel of of attention to what we're doing. Is is the uh, do you still think there's this kind of narrative of this competition of you know gold to to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies that you know that narrative was out there for a while it's like this battle between the two and for investment flows which i never myself believe that argument but um do you find that maybe there's more uh, differentiated thinking in terms of either or well i think i mean the idea that either one has to go up or the other but not both is just wrong at a mechanical level right everybody who sells gold um you know there's a buyer of that gold and everybody who buys Bitcoin, there's a seller of that Bitcoin, and the dollars are trapped in a closed-loop system. So if, if the price of Bitcoin ticks up and you sell your Bitcoin, now you have the dollars, what are you going to buy next? It may very well be gold. We have any number of, of clients and, and shareholders who um, invested um, you know, in our equity, for example, with some of the winnings they had from crypto. So they're not mutually exclusive, even just purely at a mechanical level. I think... I think the shine is off crypto. I think it's had this huge collapse, obviously from what was that November twenty twenty one, and um, you know people, you know, realize that it has this incredible downside. Um, but I think they, I think they perform two different functions. So something that sometimes the crypto people try to say, "Gotcha, look at what Keith said." I would say crypto is obviously superior to gold at skyrocketing, and also of course crashing. Right. I mean, if your goal is to make 10x your money, gold is just not going to do that for you. Um, and, and crypto might, but, but gold won't. So on the other hand, crypto can't finance anything productive in the real world. And that's exactly what we're doing with gold. So we've proven that gold can do that. It is doing it. Um, and it's, it's producing a sound uh, and steady um, you know, return 
Whereas in crypto, I, I used to say, you know, there's no such thing as interest in crypto. Nobody can borrow it. And then, haha, Keith, you're wrong. Look at all these crypto lending platforms like Celsius. Well, as it turned out, there was nothing sound about it. It was just all in on the Ponzi scheme. You call it borrowing, and then you basically buy more of the same. And as long as the price is going up, everybody wins. And um, but that's not finance of real productive things in the real world. You know, if somebody gives us 100 ounces and we lease it to a refiner, you know, we're financing something that's a real business that's that's serving a real market need. And regardless of whether the price of gold were to double to 4,000 or be cut in half to 1,000, the refiner has, has those ounces doing something productive with those ounces and is paying that return at the end of the year. Um, you know, you get back that 100 ounces plus, let's say, you know, 3% or you have 103 ounces. So there's a soundness to financing real things that um, you know crypto so far hasn't uh, you know really attempted to do hasn't really entered the field. Um, so and I, I think people that are interested in monetary metals kind of realize that that you you know if if there's going to be an end and we talk about this this incipient crisis, it's the same as 2008 only bigger because they kicked the can down the road. The can has now grown you know, legs or arms like Trogdor, the can is kicking back or punching back now. What's the way out of this? We have to transition to another monetary system. The Bitcoiners would say Bitcoin, but Bitcoin can't finance anything productive. It's got to be gold. And, um, you know, that's the why of monetary metals. We didn't just pick gold because we're betting on its price or it's shiny rock or whatever. Um, it's that, you know, gold is the antidote. Gold is the only thing it worked for thousands of years. It'll work again, and we need a graceful transition path to get there. And that's what that's what interest is about. Uh, it's it's ultimately it's the regulator of flow of, of how something is going to circulate in the market. And if there's no interest, you don't really get you know circulation. You just get hoarding. People buy it, wait for the price to go up, sell it, or get bored waiting for the price to go up, eventually sell it, or they sell to you know cut their losses. You just have buying and selling, but you don't have actual circulation, which requires borrowing, lending, leasing, um, paying interest, and, you know, and so forth. For those that want to uh, track more of your, your thoughts on markets, you know, I think you, you mentioned your podcast, but uh, for those that want to just get in more involved in the way that you think about the world or maybe learn more about uh, what you're doing with, with earning interest on gold, uh, where do you point them to? Well, on, on Twitter, I'm at RealKeithWiener. And um, the company is monetary-metals, with an S, plural, monetary-metals.com. And we have a ton of articles on, you know, how the system is failing, that it's, it's going to ultimately be drowning in a sea of negative interest rates rather than hyperinflating with, you know, skyrocketing consumer prices. But um, we've got a ton of stuff on that and obviously about our products and how people can participate and, you know, what's for... General investors, what's for accredited investors only, um, you know, all that stuff. That's a uh, good place to wrap this Twitter space up for my next call here. Everybody, please make sure you follow uh, Keith Wiener here on Twitter. Appreciate those that keep attending these spaces efforts. I've got two more uh, throughout the day, including one at 10 p.m. Eastern. So it's going to be a long day and night for me. Uh, Thank you, Keith. Really enjoy listening. I I find myself nodding to a lot of things that you you were saying throughout this, uh, this conversation here. Thanks for having me, Michael. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. 
You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.